Welcome to Expert Gold Radio, which shows you how to leverage your leadership. Here's your host, Gahan Pereira, for this month's show. Welcome to Expert Gold Radio for February 2014. Here in Australia, we've just celebrated Australia Day. For many people, this is the start of their working year after a long Christmas break and maybe a little bit of annual leave or time off over holiday, over summer for some summer holidays. For me, I've just returned from Sydney. I've just been at a speaking workshop with Matt Church, a great workshop, and I'm right back into presenting, writing, and of course, doing this radio show. So this month on the show, we're going to look at two things, trends and tribes, or if you like, goal setting and membership sites. So let's start by looking at some goals. Last month, in last month's radio show, we looked at some recent trends for people who are working from a home office, an internet cafe, or some kind of other non-traditional workplace. So now we're going to extend that and look at some specific goals that you can set for this year based on those trends. And I had a discussion recently with my friend and co-author of the book, Out of Office, Chris Pudney, about this topic. And I reckon even if you work in an office, you'll still find these useful because they're about general things like email and ongoing education and video conferencing and better collaboration. And that's useful for all of us. So let's join the conversation now. So it is the beginning of the year, and this is a time when lots of people make New Year's resolutions and goals and set up their plans for the coming year. So that's what we thought we'd do today. So it's your idea, Chris. It's a really good idea. So we're going to talk about a few goals or resolutions that you might like to make based around your out-of-office work style. So things that you can do if you're working out of office, and we've, we're making this broad enough that it applies whether you're a telecommuter, part-time or full-time, or a digital nomad. So we're going to suggest some things, and we're going to basically broadly follow the, the structure of the book. The book has eight main chapters, so we've got one idea that you can take from each one of those eight chapters, or if you like, each one of those eight areas. And we are going to make this broad enough that you can choose from any uh, any or all of those eight. So we'd love it if you did all eight of them this year, but of course you can pick and choose and uh, choose the ones that are most appropriate to you. And we have picked some that we think are applicable to pretty much all out-of-office workers. And if you do some of these or all of these, your your out-of-office work style and your life will be better by the end of 2014. That's our promise to you. <laughs> it is indeed. So <laughs> don't hold us to that. <laughs> All right, so let's kick things off. And, and here we're talking about the part-time telecommuter or the semi-commuter. And I've called this suggestion back up to the power of two. Now, if you're a, a traditional office worker, then there's probably going to be an IT department who takes care of system administration issues like backups and network security. But if you're a semi-commuter or even a full-time telecommuter, then some of that responsibility is going to fall to you. So when it comes to disaster recovery, you need to be taking care of backups. So I reckon you need to back up at least twice, which is why I've called this backup to the power of two. So the first backup you should be taking is just a simple external backup. So those important documents and files that are on your hard disk need to be backed up to some external media, whether it's DVDs or an external hard drive. That's the first backup you need to be taking. In addition to that, I'd recommend that you also take an online backup. So there are cloud services that will back up important files to uh, a server that's in the cloud. And then optionally, you can take, it, take this uh, to the power of three. You can do a third backup, which is an off-site backup. So say your external backups, you can make copies of those and store them somewhere that's off-site. So the external backup uh, takes care of things like if you have a hard disk crash then you can ease or you accidentally delete files you can easily replace them from your external backups but if you have a major disaster like I don't know a house fire and your, your home office is burnt or, or theft someone steals all your electronic equipment including your external backups then the online backup allows you to recover from those kinds of disasters and something you also need to consider is uh, in your backup plans are your mobile devices, so your smartphones or your tablets. And one way of thinking of this is are you using them in in a manner that I would call a cloud device? Now, I don't know if that's a, a term someone else has coined, and if they haven't, I'm going to lay claim to it and trademark it. <laughs> but what I mean by cloud device is that essentially on your smartphone or tablet, you don't have any files or documents that aren't 
automatically synchronized with a version that's in the cloud. So, for example, if you've got an Android device, there's a, an auto backup feature that will automatically upload any photos that you take to your Google Plus account. And similarly, if you're using things like Dropbox or Evernote, all of those files are automatically synchronized with versions that are in the cloud. So aim to be using your mobile devices uh, in a as cloud devices, as I've just described. Um, and then in addition to that, there are apps that will do some explicit backups from of files that are on your mobile devices. So the goal here is to be able to quickly and easily recover from minor setbacks like hard disk crashes or accidentally deleting files, but also to be able to completely recover from major disasters like a house fire or, a, or theft. And the process for achieving that goal is to regularly, is to schedule some regular backups of your hard drive on your PC, and you should also be using your mobile devices as cloud devices. In the book, we say there are two kinds of people, those people who do backups and those who've never had uh, a disk crash. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I've never had a disk crash, but I do do backups. Do yeah. Back. yeah, and I'm in the same position. I'm glad that I can recover within a day if even a major disaster happens. So let's move on to the next one. So the next one is all about cooperating with people. And uh, you're going to have to do that anyway with whatever kind of out-of-office work style you have. You're going to have to cooperate with people. And so I want 2014 to be the year that at last you get your email under control because email is probably the, still the biggest business communication tool. And it's a, for most people, it's the biggest problem that they have with their productivity. And the main thing you have to do is get your inbox under control. And there are a number of tools that will let you do that. But I think the simplest one is to have a principle of inbox zero. So in other words, have nothing in your main inbox at all times. So every time you check your inbox, you empty it out. It doesn't mean you action everything, but it means that you put things in folders so that you can then come back to them later. And the the principle around this is that you don't let your inbox set your priorities. Too many people operate based on priorities in their inbox, and you shouldn't do that. So uh, I think the way to achieve that is to actually know your priorities. So know what you're planning to do for the year, for the quarter, for the month, for the week, and then even down to what you need to do today. And then make that, those your priorities. And as things come into your inbox, decide whether or not they will help you achieve those goals for the day or the week or the month or the quarter of the year. And if not, uh, make sure that they become a lower priority. So the goal is, and uh, you know, there are any number of goals you could set around this, but I reckon a really useful goal to set is that every week, at the start of the week, set five top goals that you want to achieve for the week. And then make sure that every week you do achieve those goals. And along the way, uh, to prevent email from being a problem, get your inbox to zero every time you check it, which means that you check it, file things away, and then you're down to zero, and then you decide what you're going to do with the mail that comes in. So it sounds easy, and actually it's, it is surprisingly easy, but also surprisingly powerful. Yeah, it is. I, I certainly do uh, several of those steps that you've described, Gihan, and as you say, it's it's a simple process, but it's really it really helps with your productivity. Yeah, and, and psychologically, as much as anything else, that every time you open up your inbox, mm. there's a, there's only a few messages there, and it only takes you you know a minute at most to clear out those messages by filing them away, and then psychologically you can have a breather and you go, okay, now I've got an empty inbox. Absolutely, yes. I occasionally catch glimpses of other people's inboxes, and I recoil in horror. Okay, so let's move on and. The next section is for your comfort. So if you're a full-time telecommuter like me, I'm going to suggest that you enroll in a MOOC, which is a massive online, sorry, it's a massive open online course. And uh, you and I both enrolled in MOOCs in 2013. And they're an emerging trend in online education. So one of the largest providers is Coursera. And I think they've attracted four or five million enrollees to their courses. Uh, a newer one is edX. And they've had uh, between one and two million people enroll in their courses. So they've already attracted millions of students. And the reason for recommending them uh, for telecommuters, uh, for your comfort, is because they're a really good fit with the out-of-office work style. So the same kind of flexibility and freedom that's afforded by out-of-office work um, fits with MOOCs in that you're free to consume the course content um, in a time and in a place that suits you. 
So as, I, as I've mentioned, there's, there's quite a few providers and there's a huge variety of topics being offered by them. So you're sure to be able to find a topic that's relevant to you and the different providers structure their courses differently. So you need to choose one that's a good fit for you. So Coursera, for instance, I, I did one of their courses in 2013 or 2013, and it was it was quite well structured. It was an, an eight-week course, and each week there was a test that had to be performed, and that had a deadline, and there were a couple of assignments also with deadlines. So it was it was quite well structured. But other providers uh, are much much more. F- much freer in the structure of their course in that you can consume the content at any pace. So choose one that's going to work for you. And finally, know what it is that you want to get out of the course. So in the first instance, there's going to be an education opportunity, but there's also the experience, if you've not done a MOOC before, there's the experience of learning how MOOCs uh, are put together and, and how to engage with them. And finally, if you're looking for some kind of professional certification or qualification, do a little bit of research and spend some time making sure that if you complete the course, uh, is that certification or qualification from a reputable institution and is it going to be recognised by other people? Yeah, great. And in in addition to the two that you mentioned, Chris, I'm going to also mention the one that I did some courses with last year, which is on a much smaller scale and it's Australian-based. It's called opentostudy.com. So open and the number two and then study, opentostudy.com. They have smaller courses, shorter courses, less intensive courses, but they're a really good way to get started with online learning if you want to dip your toe in the water first. Yeah, great, great. So uh, the goal here then with MOOCs is uh, firstly to learn about MOOCs, to become familiar with them, and also, as Stephen Covey put it in his book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, to sharpen the saw, so to improve your expertise. And the process for achieving that goal is to review the MOOCs that are available, find one that's suitable for you in terms of the things that I've just described, enroll in it, and participate. I'm not saying that you necessarily have to complete the MOOC, and in fact, 90% of people drop out because there's a relatively low barrier to entry. People are still just testing the waters and becoming familiar. So participate to learn how MOOCs work, and then later on, you'll be in a position to engage with them really well. All right, so let's move on to the the next area of working with other people, which is collaboration. So we talked about cooperating. So the next goal I'm suggesting is to get good at video conferencing because that is another emerging trend in online communication. So it used to be that you used to meet in person or you used to do teleconferencing if you wanted to actually have a meeting. But now video conferencing, the technology has become so good that it's not only feasible, but sometimes it's actually the preferable communication channel. So compared to, say, email, which is not synchronous, so you're not doing it at the same time, so it's deferred communication, and compared to teleconferencing, where you don't get to see people's faces, you just get to hear their voice, and compared to in-person meetings, which are pretty good, but it means you have to get there and you have to have everyone in the same room. And also, in-person meetings can sometimes be a little bit less efficient because there is the time to get there, people tend to chat informally, whereas video conferencing people tend to be on task so get good at video conferencing and it does mean that you may need to learn a little bit more about that and be good at the the preparation for it and also the actually running the video conference well but one of the things you should do is actually look at adding video conferencing to your suite of communication tools so i reckon if you're looking for a goal for the year look at all the video conference, uh, all the meetings that you're currently doing, and consider whether one of them could be converted into a regular video conference uh, instead. Just try it out. And also, if you've tried video conferencing before and you found that it's been a little bit clunky and a bit difficult to use, just pretend that, you have, that you've never done it because uh, that might turn you off and you might be surprised to find just how good video conferencing software and hardware is now and how easy, how easy it is to do. Very good. And this section is called Letting the World. It's really specifically about letting the world know about you and what it is that you do by developing brand you, so your personal brand. And that's particularly important for out-of-office workers because there is the insidious out-of-sight, out-of-mind factor that you have to work against. And so developing and projecting your personal brand helps uh, to overcome that out-of-sight, out-of-mind factor. So start off by asking yourself, do you actually have a personal brand? And if you don't, then spend some time identifying um, how it is you want to be seen by your clients and colleagues. So, for example, are you the, the go-to girl or go-to guy for a particular kind of work? 
or do you have some experience or expertise or education or endorsements that will help you build or identify a personal brand? If you have one already, then review it. So has your personal brand evolved or changed or, or would you actually like to would you like to change it? Would you like it to evolve in some way? So having thought about your personal brand, the next thing you can do is plan how you're going to project it uh, over the coming year. So a good tool for that is social media. So you should be regularly blogging. So that's a good way of establishing your credentials and your expertise in a particular uh, particular area. Tweeting to your followers, so sharing sharing with them useful articles or links to useful articles that you've come across is a great way of um, letting your followers know that you're keeping an eye on a particular uh, a particular topic or a particular area and that you're filtering that for them. You can also use Google Plus and Facebook in a similar fashion. You should look at your review your LinkedIn profile and and is that in line with the personal personal brand that you want to project. And you can do other things like you can uh, buy a vanity domain name that uh, is in line with your personal brand. You can have a sign. You can update your email signature so that it tells people something about your personal brand. And finally, and probably most importantly, is actually to be your personal brand. So there has to be some substance behind the personal brand that you're developing. So it's no use me saying uh, I'm a data visualization expert if I'm not actually doing some data visualization work actually have got some substantial experience behind the personal brand that I'm developing. So the goal here is for people to know your personal brand, to know you by that personal brand, and the process is to either identify and review what your personal brand is, then to project it using things like social media, and finally to be that personal brand by by doing things that are related to it. I really like the process there, Chris, because building a personal brand is not something where at the end of the year you can say, yep, this is actually right. Or, you know, it, it's a it's something that's a bit subjective. But I really like your process of saying, OK, well, the way you do it is by blogging, tweeting, consistently building your reputation one step at a time. And eventually people will say, yep, you're the go to guy for data visualization within the organization or externally. And uh, I think it's just a matter of doing the process. Yep. Great. So the third part of the book is about digital nomads. So these are people who aren't telecommuters, but they're not bound to any physical location. Now, not everyone's going to be in that position, but the three goals that we've chosen in this area are goals that are broad enough that even if you're not a digital nomad, you can still make use of these. And these are still worthwhile goals for you, regardless of your position, where where your home office is, or even if you work in an office. So the first one is to go paperless. So people have been talking for decades about the idea of the paperless office, and it's yet to come to fruition, but it's probably closer and more feasible now than ever before to the the idea that you don't need any paper because everything's stored digitally. And the idea of going paperless, obviously there's some benefits of saving paper and uh, saving the rainforest, but it's not really about that. The main principle is to convert everything that you've got into bits rather than atoms. So in other words, when things are digital, it's so much easier to manipulate them. So it's much easier to store them, to search them, to to edit them, to do backups, as you mentioned earlier, to pass them on to other people and share in other ways. Um, And obviously, you've also always got them at your fingertips. So if you've got all your documents on your laptop, you don't need to refer back to something that's in your office or you may you don't need to go back to your office to do work and of course it also has another benefit that you don't have as much visible clutter around you don't have an overflowing paper uh, inbox a physical inbox you don't have files on shelves that are that have been gathering mold because you haven't got around to to dealing with them they're they're files on your computer which are gathering mold because you haven't got around to dealing with them but they're not visible so as as a result of that, uh, you may be surprised just to to realize uh, until you do this, you don't realize how much more portable and mobile you become just by going paperless. So if you do decide to become a digital nomad, if you're not one already, then it's so much easier. You've already put the steps in place to do that because you've got all your stuff available digitally. And even if you're not, uh, even if you're a full-time office worker, but you need to occasionally travel for business, for meetings, for conferences, or even if you want to check your email and do a little bit of work when you're on holidays, having all your material digitally rather than on paper just makes it so much easier. So, so just get into the get into the habit of doing things like uh, just you know make getting rid of as much paper as possible. So, get your paper bills delivered by electronic. 
form um, if you can. And some or some companies will actually uh, give you a discount if you do that because they don't need to send it out to you by paper. If you do have stuff that's still coming in by paper then you and there's nothing you can do about it, then scan them as they come in and store them digitally. Um, one of the things I do is when I make handwritten notes, even a note from a phone call that I have with a client or a prospect or from a meeting, the first thing I'll do is take a photograph of it and then store the photograph and throw away the bit of paper. So I've now got the photo, I've now got the notes digitally or even better if you're comfortable with using note-taking tools on your phone or your tablet do that so that they become digitally um, immediately they become digital immediately uh, get used to using pdf instead of paper so if you've got a web page or a receipt of something that you've uh, got from online shopping then save it as pdf rather than printing it and uh, and also once you start using pdf just learn how to add your signature to pdf documents so you don't have to print it just to then sign it and then post it back because then you lost you've lost the signed version of it uh, there are very easy tools available for you to automatically sign or add add or annotate pdf documents which means that you still end up with the the digital version so i reckon your goal should be that all your regular sort of paperwork is digital so that everything that's coming in regularly and you know is coming in regularly comes in digitally so you don't get it in your in your post box or through other paper forms anymore. And I reckon the process that you go through to, to achieve that goal is that uh, you don't have to do it all today, but as every piece of paper comes in, just have a look at it and figure out, first of all, how you can make that digital because that solves the immediate problem. And then secondly, is there a way that you can prevent that piece of paper or the similar piece of paper coming into your life ever again? And if you can, then put the process in place to do that. Yeah, yeah, I'm starting to do this too, Kihan. And once you start doing it, it you really realize, why, why haven't I been doing this for longer? Okay, so this this next section is called Accommodate Them for the digital nomad and one way that you can accommodate the people that you work with is by migrating to the cloud. One of the principles that uh, we have in the book is as much as it's practical use the cloud for collaboration and what you can do is that examine the ways that you're working so if you're still doing things say the old-fashioned way in quotes so if for instance you're emailing attachments to other people think about well could this be better done by using a cloud service so could you instead be uploading that document to a cloud service and then using the, the tools there to share that with the people that you were going to email or just sharing with them a link to that document. Uh, that's a, a much easier way of collaborating and accommodating the, the people that you're working with. And, and an example of this was that a few years ago, uh, I moved all of my email contacts, calendar and tasks to Google, so basically to the Gmail cloud application. And that meant that... Uh, I could access all of those services and content um, either from my home office desktop PC or when I was traveling, I could use my smartphone or tablet to get to them. And if I was in a client's office, then I could easily, again, get to those services and content from, from their network. More recently, I've started doing what Gihan has just described. So as part of going paperless, um, not just making things digital, but also making sure that they were stored in the cloud. So I'd upload them to folders in Google Drive. And then if, as well as being paperless, it also meant that if I wanted to share those documents with other people, I was easily able to accommodate them by using the tools in Google Drive to share them and to, to send links to people as well. So the goal here then is to have the content and services that you use be online in the cloud. And the way of getting there is to basically review the ways that you're working and if you can identify a cloud-based alternative to what you're doing at the moment, then try and switch to that. And again, Chris, I really like that idea and I'm going to take away something from that for myself as well because you're quite right, like having things in the cloud not only makes it easier for you to work with other people and accommodate them, it makes it easy for you as well. And I find occasionally I still have documents on my PC that aren't in the cloud. So when I'm out and about and I don't have my PC, but I do have my phone, I can't get access to those documents. So if I had them online, then I'd be able to access them from all my devices, let alone being able to share them with other people as well. Yeah. Okay. And the last one, the last goal is to meet up. So we're 
I'm calling this one Meetup. And the chapter in the book is all about, we call this Embrace the World. It's all about if you're a digital nomad, take the opportunity to use that freedom to go and work from elsewhere. So I spent a month in Prague, a month in Auckland, uh, and that is possible if you're a digital nomad. Now, not everyone's going to do that, and maybe not everyone wants to do that. But if you embrace the principle that all the things that we're talking about being able to move out of office mean that you have got more freedom and flexibility. Well, what does that freedom and flexibility gives you? Give you? Well, it gives you the chance to enjoy the world a bit more. So our last idea and our last goal is about actually taking things offline. The idea is to get to get out more. I'm going to suggest to you as a goal, set yourself the goal of doing something new offline this year. So couple of examples here. I'll give you a few examples. So you might join a new social club or start a new social club. So you can go to meetup.com where there's a whole bunch of them already available that you may choose to join. And these are people who meet in person. Or you may just create something informally with your friends, like I decide to get together and go out to dinner once a month. Um, if you want to do something about your health and fitness, perhaps because you're going out to dinner more frequently now, <laughs> then maybe you want to start an exercise group or join an exercise group. And again, what I'm talking about here is do it with people. So join a gym class rather than go to the gym by yourself or a group fitness class or go on a fun run or start an indoor soccer team or something like that. Um, and then in your in your professional life, there are other things you could do as well, like go to more business networking events, actually in person, or go to whatever your industry association is, go to some of their chapter meetings or their national conference, or even start a mastermind group with some peers and colleagues that you get together, uh, say, once a month at a, at a restaurant or a cafe and just discuss ideas and help each other. But the idea is to get get offline, so get out more and embrace the world that way, even if you decide not to go and spend months in Prague and Auckland and other <laughs> exotic places. So I think that as, as, uh, as a goal, broadly, the goal is getting out more. And what you decide to do is up to you. I'm certainly not here to tell you what you should do, but decide on something and make that a goal for yourself. And the process is pretty easy. Just find some things that you'd like to do, talk about some things with your with your partner or with friends, and, and then create something and then schedule it and, and go off and do it. Very good. Very good. So there you have it, Gihan, and uh, our listeners. That's eight suggestions for incorporating your out-of-office work style into goal setting and planning for 2014. Do you want to work from virtually anywhere? The internet makes it possible, and the book Out of Office shows you how. Get your copy at outofofficebook.com and get more convenience, comfort, and freedom in your work life. So we're still looking at trends, and I was recently interviewed by Winston Marsh for his business marketing subscription service, and we looked at seven key technology trends for business owners and, of course, how you can take advantage of them. So let's join the conversation now from the business marketing program. Okay, buckle your seatbelt and get ready to get up to cyberspace speed. It's time for Gihan Pereira to take us into the fast, flat and free world. Gihan Pereira, you're going to look in your crystal ball and give us some trends for this upcoming year, aren't you? Yes, it's the right time of the year to do that, we know, so I thought we might look ahead for 2014. So what's the first one, Gihan? Well, these are all based around uh, the Gartner Group, which is a big technology consulting group, did their own predictions of 10 strategic technology trends, which are mostly aimed at big businesses. Uh, I thought I'd put my little uh, take on them or my little angle on them. That will work for most business owners. And the first one, probably isn't any surprise, is all about mobile devices and the fact that more and more people will want access to you from their phones and their tablets, not just from their desktops or their laptop computers. So... The, the real takeaway and the real action you need to make sure of is that your website is mobile-friendly. Um, it doesn't mean you need a separate website for mobile phones, but it does mean that your website does work on phones and on tablets. And, and it's also designed so that people who are on the move can have access to your site. So I know that one of the things that you and I bemoan, we know, is that quite often it's difficult to find contact numbers and phone numbers on somebody's website, especially when somebody's on the move, they want to be able to ring you because they might be close to you and they want to come and visit, they want to find your opening hours. So things like phone numbers, opening hours, and link to Google Map, it's really important for a mobile site. Now, question about that. People have all got their websites. 
and having demobilised, I think that's the phrase, is becoming uh, very important. How much should it cost? And I know that's a bit like uh, how long is a piece of string, but should it be thousands or hundreds of dollars to get your website working well on mobiles? There are two versions. There are two answers to that question we know. So the first one is if you have a completely separate mobile website, now, that can cost as much as building another website, which could go into the thousands of dollars. But I think the better option for most businesses is that you make sure that whoever develops your website makes sure that it looks okay on phones and tablets as well. In other words, it's mobile-friendly. And that shouldn't cost anything more nowadays. If you've got an old website, you may need to pay somebody to upgrade it so it is mobile-friendly. But all the websites that are built nowadays should be your developers. They know what they're doing. They should be building it in a way that they test it on laptops, phones, and tablets. And in fact, they should be testing it on Apple uh, iPads and iPhones, as well as the Android phones and tablets as well. So it shouldn't cost you any more. It should be part of the development process. Okay, so there's nothing to stand in the way of making sure we've all done it. That's exactly right, yep. Okay, what's number two on this list of trends? The second one is related to mobile apps, but it's actually related to apps in general. And the, the trend is that people want to have more interaction. I'm sure you remember the days we know when a website was pretty static. It was just an online brochure, and all you could do was read text on it. And then people started adding things like audio and video, and that's become the norm now. It's not, even, it's not unusual to find websites with audio and video on them, but also people are expecting even more interaction. So the more that you can make your website interactive, the better. So you, you might have, for example, an online diagnostic quiz. Um, I've seen coaches do this. I've seen a coach that has a quiz on his site that says, how coachable are you? And it's a 10-question quiz. You fill it in, and at the end it gives you a score. And, of course, it gives him a chance to promote himself as well. So just think about how you can make your websites more interactive. And that doesn't mean having fancy graphics, but it means actually interacting with the person who's visiting your site. And you're saying, of course, that should be an app as well, aren't you? Well, not necessarily. I think there's some businesses where it makes sense for them to have an app because the app can do something useful. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have an app for your business. And I think a lot of people go down the app path and they're quite disappointed by the results because nobody downloads their app. And people have already got too many apps on their phone and their tablet. They don't want to download necessarily another app. So I would rather that most businesses start by investing a little bit of extra money in adding some interactive features to their website before they go to an app, unless they've got a really good idea for an app. I see. And, of course, you're referring to the larger problem there. I'd rather have people invest so other people find their website. That's the biggest problem, isn't it? With so many people in cyberspace, you've got to make sure you get found. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that lead generation and the fact that you're using your website to get people into your business is important. And the, the secret now is that it's more than your website. So there's some people who are still working away, trying to beaver away with the keywords on each page and trying to optimize it for search engine. But really... The research shows that Google doesn't pay much attention to what's on your website anymore. I mean, it matters to some extent, but 75 to 80% of what Google looks at when ranking your website is what happens outside your site. It's what you do on social media. It's what you do with your blogging. It's how other people are linking back to you. It's what you do on YouTube. So it's all those things outside your website that are going to get people to your website, and it's what Google looks at as well. Yes, indeed. Wonderful wise words from the man who can put you on the cyberspace map, Gihan Pereira. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Winston. Listening back to that, I just realized how much I enjoy being part of Winston's regular program. And I'm a regular contributor to the business marketing program. And it's just full. It's chock full of marketing wisdom for businesses of, of all sizes, really. And if you'd like to know more about it, check out his website at winstonmarsh.com.au. I think you'll love it. So now let's talk about your tribe or your network or your community, any of those terms. And this is not just about your customer database, but it's wider than that. And it includes suppliers and subscribers and members and social media followers and more than that. So it's everybody who's in your business network. I'm going to be running a two-day workshop about building a membership site in April in Sydney. I'll tell you a little bit more about that later. But first, let's take a broader look at what your tribe might look like, what your network might look like. So I'm going to share here the Build Your Tribe chapter from my audiobook, Fast, Flat and Free. Build Your Tribe, or It's a Small World After All. 
In April 2008, respected British science writer Simon Singh wrote an article in the Guardian newspaper criticizing the British Chiropractic Association or the BCA, saying that chiropractic happily promotes bogus treatments. Not surprisingly, they weren't happy, and they proceeded to sue him. But he refused to back down, and he chose to fight the case. The British Chiropractic Association didn't reckon with the strength of support for Simon Singh from the wider community, including journalists and lawyers and doctors and scientists, sceptical thinking advocates, politicians and campaign groups. On and off the internet, his supporters rallied around him in blogs and podcasts and meetings, in media campaigns, and in other ways. And this story has a happy ending for Simon Singh because the BCA withdrew their libel action. I'm telling you this not just because it's a heartwarming David versus Goliath story where David strikes a fatal blow with a single strike from a slingshot. Rather, the tables were turned on Goliath when it turned out that David was not just a single powerless individual, but somebody with a strong army of supporters who came to his aid when needed. So here's the point: you don't run your business in isolation. Well, you never have, but the modern social internet has made this even more important. Even if you don't sell online. So your job is to build and nurture your tribe, the network of people who are important to your business. In the past, the main members of your tribe might have been your customers, the people who know you, they like you, they trust you, they'll buy from you, and they'll refer other people to you. Customers are still important, and everything that was true of them then is still true now. But there are now other influential groups of people as well that you want to have as part of your business tribe. Some of them could be just as important to you as your customer. So broadly, we、we'll、look at five different groups of people you interact with in your business, and this is how you interact with them: you delegate to staff, you collaborate with peers, you affiliate with influencers, engage with customers, and sell to advertisers. Let's start with delegating to staff. And broadly, there are three ways that you can source your staff. You can insource work to your employees and contractors, the people on your payroll. You can outsource work to other organisations who are often in other countries, or you can crowdsource work by opening it up to the world. Many business owners know how to insource because they're doing it already. If you've got staff, employees, or contractors, then you're insourcing. It gives you control, consistency, convenience, availability, and continuity of your staff. Let's look at outsourcing in more detail because that's a little bit more interesting and a little bit newer. The internet makes it so much easier for you to delegate and outsource work to people all around the world. It's not just about saving money; it's also about tapping into skills and expertise from people all around the world. This is not a new concept. For decades, businesses have been outsourcing things like bookkeeping and advertising and printing, graphic design and branding. What's changed recently is that the internet brings even more providers to your door and allows you to outsource even more. So don't just think about outsourcing process-oriented secretarial or admin tasks like billing and bookkeeping and following up late payments and taking phone messages. You can even find the right people to do more sophisticated things, such as online research, customer surveys, managing your events, customer service, designing PowerPoint presentations. Writing, proofreading, search engine marketing. Now you can find individual suppliers online, but an easier way to get started is with an outsourcing community like Elance.com or Odesk.com, which allow you to reach and select from many providers. And after you find reliable providers for certain tasks, you'll want to work with them directly. But to find them initially, it's useful to start with these communities, which are sometimes called talent markets. I'll talk about Elance here, and the others are similar. Broadly, the process works like this: you advertise your job on Elance, a number of providers bid on it, you choose one of them, they complete the project for you, and you pay them the agreed fee. The whole process is easy and cost-effective. You don't have to pay for advertising your project, and you only pay the agreed price. Elance makes its money by taking a commission from the provider. So, if outsourcing is new to you, start with something small and safe, not something big and complex and with a tight deadline. When you get started, write a full description of your project, giving all the information that the providers need to make a reasonable bid. The more information you can provide, the better. That way, they don't have to pad their fee to cover for contingencies. Decide on your budget, and if you're not sure, search Elance for similar projects and specify this when you submit your project. If it's too low, you'll only get low-quality providers. And I think it's usually better to err on the side of bidding high, so you can attract higher-quality bids and more reliable providers. After you post your project, you'll receive a number of bids, usually a big rush within 24 hours. Now it's up to you to choose a bidder. Don't just go for the lowest bid. Look for other things such as the number of projects they've done, feedback from other buyers, samples of similar work they've done, and if relevant, distance issues like their time zone or their English language skills. When you do choose somebody, set intermediate deadlines with specific deliverables and progress payments, especially if it's the first time you're working with them. This is not just for you to keep an eye on them; it's also an opportunity for them to ask for feedback as early as possible. 
If you find that things are going off track during the project, raise the issue sooner rather than later. Be polite but assertive and take responsibility for your feelings. Of course, ultimately you can withhold payment, but that's the last resort and nobody wins. Finally, be a good customer. So pay promptly, thank them for doing a good job and leave them positive feedback. And of course, give them some more work soon if you have it. So that's outsourcing. The other way you can get work done is through crowdsourcing. Unlike insourcing and outsourcing, crowdsourcing calls on many people before you narrow down your choice. This has been difficult to do in the past, but in today's flatter world, it's easier than ever to reach people with the right skills. So think of crowdsourcing as like running a competition where only one person wins a prize, but many enter for the chance to win. Running a successful crowdsourcing project is not as simple as announcing it to the world and hoping the right people will turn up. If you'd like to know more about crowdsourcing in your business, I highly recommend the excellent free white paper called Eight Principles of Successful Crowdsourcing from chaotix.com. That's C-H-A-O-R-D-I-X dot com. Whether you're insourcing, outsourcing or crowdsourcing, you're in effect creating a supplier-customer relationship with other people. But you can also create more equal partnerships by working with your peers. And thanks to the internet, collaboration no longer means getting together face-to-face, so you're no longer limited to people in your local area. So let's look at six principles of collaboration, specifically related to collaborating using the internet. Number one, use the cloud. So as far as possible, keep your data and documents online so everybody has access to them at any time. If you haven't done much with the cloud, you might be surprised to discover just how much can be done that way now. As a rule of thumb, start by assuming that it can be done in the cloud and only fall back to a non-cloud-based solution if absolutely necessary. Number two is show your face. If you're collaborating with strangers, be human. Share your personality during a collaboration and allow others to share theirs with you. Number three is to let go of perfection. When you collaborate, aim for 80% right, 100% complete. In other words, it's better to release an imperfect product than to never release it at all. doesn't mean that you compromise quality. It's just that people have such different opinions that it's virtually impossible for a product that's produced by collaboration to be exactly what any one collaborator wanted. So don't try and control everything about the people, the process, or the outcome. Next, number four, is work to a plan. So be clear about your milestones, your deliverables, and your deadlines. Make sure everybody involved knows and understands the plan. Your collaborators are often working in different time zones and different timetables. So have a clear plan with goals and deadlines so it's easy for everyone to manage their times and priorities. Five, set the ground rules. This is not just about planning, but be clear about the rules and parameters for executing the plan. In particular, be clear about some assumptions that you might be making. For example, if something is due by 5 p.m. tomorrow, is that 5 p.m. in your time zone, 5 p.m. in your colleague's time zone, or 5 p.m. GMT? If somebody has to create a document, in what format are they going to deliver it? Is it going to be Word or PDF? And this might make the difference between the rest of the team being able to read it. And if you're working together on a document, what common writing and formatting styles will you adopt? Those are the sort of things that you might just be taking for granted, but be clear about them so you don't make assumptions. And finally, think global. Take into account the different things that are inherent in collaborating with international partners. Things like time zones and language and spelling, currency and customs. It is possible to collaborate remotely, even with these differences, but be sure that everyone takes them into account. The next group of people you work with are influencers, and you affiliate with influencers. My marketing coach liked to ask, who has your customer before you? His point was that if those people recommended you, it would be far more effective and probably much less expensive than almost any other marketing technique. On the internet, this is called an affiliate program. So one party, called the merchant, has a product, and the other party, called the affiliate, has access to the market. They join forces in a very simple agreement, where the merchant pays the affiliate a commission on each sale. Creating an affiliate program has a number of benefits. Somebody else has done all the work in building a customer list. You can reach markets that would otherwise be outside your reach. You'll get more highly targeted visitors to your website. You piggyback on the trust that the affiliates already established. And it's a no-risk proposition because you only pay affiliates for successful referrals. Sounds great, right? But the biggest problem is most affiliate programs don't work. Most businesses are too optimistic about their affiliate programs. So they invest a lot of time and energy in something that just doesn't pay off. Now that's not to say you shouldn't conduct an affiliate program, just go in there with your eyes open. So how do you get started? There's some excellent and quite sophisticated affiliate marketing systems available, but they can be expensive or difficult to learn. They are essential when you've built momentum, but I'm going to suggest an easier way to get started. Start by finding one person that you would like as an affiliate. 
Talk to them, explain the commission deal that you're offering, and invite them to be an affiliate. Then, before you install any affiliate software, just create a special page for that affiliate to promote whatever product you want them to sell. And you have to have some way of knowing if somebody orders through that page. For example, you can use a unique product code for all orders from that page. You then ask the affiliate to do their promotion for you and refer people to their private page. You can supply them with a sales copy or ask them to write it themselves. Then, you sit back and wait. So look what you've got. You've got an affiliate eager to find your customers. You've chosen your best product for them to promote and they've sent some promotional material to their database. This is about the best scenario possible. If you get a strong positive response, fantastic. This is a good sign that it's worth expanding the program. But my guess is that you might be disappointed with the results. It's not necessarily a bad sign because this was just a test run. It does give you valuable information about what works and what doesn't. So you have the opportunity to adjust a few things and try again. If you decide to persevere, repeat the experiment with a few more hand-picked affiliates. Remember that you engineered the best case scenario the first time, so it's worth experimenting again. And if it still works, then you can invest with confidence in proper affiliate software. Now let's look at engaging with customers. Marketing in the past didn't allow you to identify individual customers. Customers walked in as an individual, but they were treated as a demographic, not as a person, but as a type of person. And to be fair, in the past it was difficult to treat customers any other way, but computers changed that. Customer relationship management systems allow business owners to treat each customer individually, even with large numbers, and this is called mass customization. The internet added another refinement, the ability for customers to interact with each other, not just with you, and community became the new marketing buzzword. The third thing that happens is to immerse yourself in your customer community and truly collaborate with them. So these three factors, customization, community, and collaboration, have radically changed the way that we can involve our customers in our business. Customization comes first, treating customers as individuals. And that's the first and usually the easiest way to engage with your customers. And it's easier if you've got a smaller business. Start by asking yourself how early in the business process you want to involve them. Most businesses only do this after the sale when asking them to complete some sort of feedback form. For many businesses, customization is no longer expensive or time consuming. The exact way you do this varies but the internet makes this easier for you. And the earlier in the process you involve your customers, the more engaged and loyal they are, and the greater their satisfaction with the final product and with your business. Let's look at community, where you treat your customers as members. The t-shirt manufacturing company, Threadless.com, invites customers to create the designs for their t-shirts. Members of the community vote on the best designs, which Threadless then produces for its catalog. What's more, that community is not just a place for people to vote on t-shirt designs, it really is a thriving community with more than a million members. And they aren't necessarily designing the products they're buying themselves, they're helping Threadless design their products. Now few organizations have had as much success with community as Threadless, though many have tried. Most fail because they don't understand what their members want. Community, contribution, a feeling of ownership, a sense of pride, and things like that, not necessarily money. If you plan to create a community for your customers, be aware this is a serious commitment. Be willing to invest both time and money in starting it and driving it until it builds its own momentum. Do it with a long-term view, not a short-term expectation. So broadly, your community members are looking for one or more of three things. Community, resources, or access. Community is a sense of belonging, participation, and contribution. In technology terms, this sort of community is like Facebook. So people have profile pictures, they can personalize their profile, there are forums and blogs and chat rooms and special interest groups, mastermind groups, and things like that. Resources are unique information, insights, and other stuff that helps them solve their problems, achieve their goals, and overcome their fears and concerns. In this sort of community, you provide things like product training videos, webinars which might be live or recorded, ebooks and special reports, audio downloads, online courses, an online support forum, and other resources like that. And the third one is access, which is special access to you and your business. This sort of community provides things like priority telephone and email support, discounts on products and services, invitations to private events, job opportunities, exclusive news, and things like that. When you start your community, have a clear idea of which of these three things matter most, but be aware that the members might not know until they experience it themselves, so be flexible as well. Now let's look at collaboration, which is customers as peers. Michael Henderson, who's a corporate anthropologist, makes a point that in most businesses, the leader is at the top of a hierarchy, but in cultural tribes, the leader is often at the center. So ask yourself this question, what would I do if I was at the center of my tribe? 
This gives you a different perspective on your role as a leader, especially with customers. You're treating them as peers, and that gives you an opportunity to truly add value to their lives. So here's some things that you could do. Find members who don't know each other but should and introduce them. Introduce members with common interests to each other. Introduce members who work in the same market but with non-competing products and services to each other. Position other members of the community as experts rather than you being the expert. Empower other members of the community to take on leadership roles. Create mastermind groups within the community. Leverage the buying power of the community to negotiate discounts and special deals for members. Now these don't sound like typical business-to-customer interactions, and that's precisely the point. They're not. They also might not seem like they're related to your core business of selling your products and services. And again, that's precisely the point. You're treating your customers as colleagues and peers, and yes, sometimes even as friends. Now let's look at selling to advertisers. When your community grows big enough, you'll be approached by advertisers who want to reach your members. When creating an arrangement with them, remember to put your members' needs first. Your members are the most valuable asset, so don't sell them out for the sake of a short-term cash injection. You can't please everybody, but there's some things you can do to avoid upsetting your members. First, explain why you're involving advertisers. Explain why you're doing it and how it will be of benefit to members. Then ask your members what they want. If appropriate, you can ask them what they'd like and use that to choose the right sort of advertisers. Then act as a gatekeeper. So in other words, give your advertisers access through you, not directly. For example, you might allow them to advertise in your monthly member newsletter, but you don't give them the mailing list. Write a clear privacy policy. So make sure that your privacy policy clearly states how much you respect your members' privacy and confidentiality. And finally, if possible, let members opt in. Your advertisers will want access to as many members as possible, as frequently as possible, but your members will probably want as little advertising as possible. There is a middle ground, and it sometimes is available, where you allow members to choose what advertising they get and at what frequency. When you look at how you can get paid by advertisers, there's no standard model for working with them, so be willing to negotiate. And of course, the bigger and more well-established your community, the stronger your position. Here are some of the common advertising models used in online communities. First is pay-per-view. So the advertisers pay for their advertising to appear a certain number of times. You choose how much to charge per thousand views, and the advertiser pays this every month. Next is pay-per-click, where they pay only when their advertisement is clicked. This is the way that Google works. You can charge more than the pay-per-view rate, because a click is worth more than a view. The next is pay-per-sale, where they pay you only when a click leads to a sale. You can charge even higher rates this time, but this is a bit more risky for you because now you're reliant on the advertiser skill in converting leads into sales. The next one is pay per month. This is where you charge your advertisers a fixed fee. It's often called a sponsorship and it's usually done with a few rather than many advertisers. This is the option that gives you the greatest flexibility and creativity because you can work closely with your sponsors to offer benefits for your members in exchange for the sponsorship. And sponsorships don't have to be a simple exchange of money. They can take whatever form you like. Facebook, Google, and Apple have changed the way the world works. Get fast, flat, and free from fastflatandfree.com and learn how to make the internet work for you. I hope you found that useful for thinking about your tribe as your general wider community. But now let's, let's narrow it down. Let's talk about a paid membership site, which can be one part of your tribe. Now, the most obvious benefit of a paid membership site is, of course, it gives you ongoing recurring income. But there's some other benefits as well, and it's worth thinking about these if you're thinking of setting up a membership site. So let's go through a few of them. So the first one is you market once and profit forever. So when you convince somebody to sign up for your site, you can then charge their credit card every month or every year year over and over again. So you don't have to keep convincing them to re-sign or re-buy new products each time. The next thing is that it's a vehicle for value. So if you're an expert, you're always finding new stuff, new material. And the membership site gives you a place to store that material as you discover it. So you don't have to wait until you can put it into something bigger like a book or a presentation or a video. Your members get value from it immediately. The next thing is, of course, it builds loyalty. So your members remain as your clients and customers. In fact, you probably find that your most engaged members were going to be your best clients anyway. So this gives you a way to keep in touch with them regularly. The next thing is you can increase your fees. So you can bundle in your membership site with other products and services that you offer. And that gives you the chance to increase your fees, sometimes quite significantly. It also gives you a negotiation point when you're discussing fees because you can add or remove access to your membership site as part of that negotiation. The next thing is it rewards loyalty. 
Because members get access to things that non-members don't. For example, you can give them discounts and events and free access to certain things. You can give them priority access to you and to some of the guest experts that you bring in and so on. Because they're members, they get rewarded. The next thing is you can maintain relationships with your membership site. Uh, your membership site helps you give your most profitable clients access to you and ongoing contact with you so you can maintain that relationship with them. You'd want to keep that relationship going anyway and a membership site gives you the chance to do that and in a really profitable way. The next thing is that it leverages value. So you can serve your members as a group instead of having to deal with each customer individually. For example, with the membership site, the typical sort of things you put in there might be things like uh, presenting webinars or hosting a mastermind group or moderating an online forum or facilitating a group discussion. Now, of course, you can do all those things uh, outside a membership site, either free or paid, but a membership site just gives you a nice place to do that in a regular way. So in addition to this, I reckon there's one other major benefit for speakers, trainers, and other infopreneurs and thought leaders. Your membership site is a key component of your e-learning offering. So let me tell you what I mean by that. Your membership site generally won't be a standalone thing that you use only to attract strangers. You get some of those people, but the main purpose of your membership site should be to add value to your other programs. So let me give you a couple of examples. When you sell a training program to a corporate client, you can include membership for all the participants. So this means you're not only getting paid for the one-off training program, you're also getting paid over and over again from the membership fees. The same applies if you're running public rather than in-house programs. For example, when I run my two-day Build Your Website in Two Days workshop, the members and the participants of that workshop get three months access to my membership site. So that immediately makes the workshop much more valuable than if it was just a standalone event. You see, the thing is, it's so much easier to convince people who already know, like and trust you to make the small extra step to buy membership from you. It's much more difficult to sell this to strangers. But either way, you're adding value and you're providing really valuable resources from people who want to and need to get access to you. I hope that gives you some idea of what a membership site can do for you. As I mentioned, if you'd like to know more about building your own membership site, I'm going to be running a two-day workshop in Sydney in early April. And the idea with this is that you actually do build your own membership site in those two days. So, so by the end of the two days, you'll be ready to walk out with a complete membership site, ready to start taking your first members. So let me give you a quick overview of the workshop. So it's two days, it's a Monday and a Tuesday. And the first day is all about setting up your membership site with the core material. So in the morning, we're going to be talking about getting started with the software that we which is called Kajabi. So you set up the account and you customize it to match your branding and then creating the structure for it. So you set up all the menus and have everything ready to load content. And the afternoon, you spend time loading some of the resources into your site. So you upload some of the material, including things like articles and links to websites and eBooks and other documents. And then even we go into embedding things like video, audio, slideshows and things like that. And the idea is that at the end of the first day, you will have a fully functional membership site ready to go live. So you could even launch it then. And the second day is about adding more services and resources to provide even more value to your members. So we start off in the morning with other types of materials. So I'll show you how to create slideshows and video tutorials and animations and mind maps and surveys and quizzes and these other kind of resources that you might provide to your members. And I'll also show you how to use other people's materials. So how to easily and legally find and reuse high quality material from other people. And then in the afternoon, we'll look at adding other services. So not just the resources, but we'll look at things like offering things like Skype consulting or mastermind groups or online forums and video conferencing, the other sort of things that your members might be interested in. Then we finish up with some general Q&A time and then a review of the material that we've covered and importantly, the next steps for making your membership site a success. So remember that the purpose of this is that you actually get to build your membership site in that two days. So to find out more about this workshop, go to gihanperera.com and you'll see a big button on the right-hand side of the homepage and you'll find out more about the workshop and you can register now. In fact, for the people who register now, there's a special offer where you're also going to get three phone consulting sessions with me during the time that you're building your membership site so that you can get some one-on-one -on -one help from me with your strategizing, your planning, and then even after you launch it with working with your first members and getting the, the site up and running. So again, go to gihanperera.com and click the button on the right-hand side. 
So that's it for Expert Gold Radio this month. I hope you enjoyed it and found something valuable for your personal or professional life. And by the way, this radio show is not the only way that you can engage with me. There are plenty of other ways as well. Let me give you a couple of examples. So first, go to gihanperero.com and subscribe to my email newsletter, which is also called Expert Gold. And while you're there, read and subscribe to my blog as well. You'll see it there with the blog button. Also, sign up to my free webinar series. I run two webinars a month, and they're half-hour webinars, very focused on specific topics to help you with your personal and professional life. In fact, the next few, I'm going to have some about membership sites. Also, go to my YouTube channel, my video channel, at gihanperera.tv, and watch my regular educational videos. You should also join my membership site, the eGurus community. This is specifically for experts and other people who make money by selling their expertise in some way. And you can find out more at egurus.info. That's E-G-U-R-U-S dot info. Now, if you need a speaker for your next conference, you can engage me as a speaker, and you can find out more at gihanspeaks.com. You've been listening to Expert Gold Radio. If you'd like to subscribe, read the show notes, or leave your comments, visit expertgoldradio.com. And remember, great minds don't think alike.